Hey, uh, this morning, as Lisa mentioned, we are uh, we're talking about your questions that you've submitted over the last few weeks. So I've picked five questions that we're going to talk about uh, this morning that you guys have have submitted. And, and I know sometimes Sunday, is, it seems like the most pressing question we have is, what are we going to do for lunch? Uh, but we often, sometimes during the week, maybe not on Sunday mornings, have uh, pressing questions that trouble us or, or things that we're curious about what the Bible has to say about life or about God or or how we're supposed to be thinking about him and, and that kind of thing. Questions are, I, and, and one of the reasons we do this is we want to let you know that questions are one of the things that at Velocity, like we're, we know we're supposed to have. Like sometimes you may be in church where it's like, hey, don't, don't ask questions about it. You, you just believe it and, and go on and move forward. But questions are how we get to know God better how we get to know how to follow him better. And so we're going to be looking at those uh, this week, and they're, they're not really all related and stuff, so uh, it's going to be, we're going to be going kind of back and forth uh, with some scripture. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to that, but I just want to let you know we have the scripture up on the screen for you as well this morning because of how many different texts we're going to be looking at and stuff too. So let's jump into it this morning. The first question is, I want to be able to make final arrangements before I leave this world. Is it a sin or against God's word if I want to be cremated? I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, if you thought about your end-of-life plans, things that you're going to do, um, where you're going to be buried, if you're going to be buried, if you're going to be cremated. But I, I just want to let you know, first, first of all, start off and say this. The Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about burial rites, like what we're supposed to do, if we're supposed to do anything when it comes to when we die and what we do with our bodies. And so the initial answer to this question is the Bible doesn't talk about cremation. It doesn't give us instruction on one or the other, one side or the other. Now, there is church tradition uh, for thousands of years that has uh, been in existence. And for a lot of us, we've probably heard cremation talked about in terms of like, hey, that's not something we do as Christians or, or that kind of thing. And, and it's just tradition. Like that, that's all it is. The Bible doesn't talk about it. It doesn't give us instruction in either way. In fact, when the Bible uh, does talk about what happens when we die, uh, like Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, here's how it's described. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. This is God talking to Adam and Eve. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so not to be gross or, or anything this morning, but when you die, your body's going to decompose. I don't know if, if, you, if you knew that, but that, that's, that's what it, what's going to happen to your body. And so you think about all the people that have existed throughout the world, people thousands of years ago, and you think about you know, what we go through when, um, when we prepare a body for for burial and, and to go into a coffin, things we do, preservation, all that kind of stuff. Anybody who's gone through that process has decomposed at this point in time. From dust we were taken, from dust we're going to return. In the first mention of burial in the Bible, Genesis chapter 23, Abraham, this guy Abraham, buys a field and buys this cave because he's going to bury his wife Sarah in a cave. He's given, been given no instruction by God to do it this way. The reason he does it is because we're sentimental. Again, not to be crass about burial or when people die, but one of the reasons why we do this is so bodies don't decompose like in front of us. So wild animals don't drag them off because we're sentimental about people who have passed on. But our physical bodies are just shells of who we are. It doesn't have any bearing on what happens to us after we die and what God does at the end when he comes back for all of us. 
And, and specifically when it talks, uh, when we talk about burning, like one of, one of the things that's been associated in the past is that's one of the traditions that pagans had when they had burial rituals is they would have burnings and, and Christians said, hey, we want to stay away from that. But there's really no connection either way to that. Christians have been martyred by burning throughout history. They've been executed in other ways. You think through all the horrible ways that sometimes people die on accident. It's like, well, hey, is there some kind of disconnect by what, by what God can do with our resurrected bodies, whether or not we're cremated or not? And there is no bearing on that. If you're a Christ follower, regardless of what uh, you think about end of life and what you choose to do about being buried or uh, being cremated, one of the things that you should do is just talk to your family about it. If you're, you're dealing with in making that decision, see what your family has to say about it, how they feel about it, and take that into consideration. Talk about your end-of-life plan. Talk about your will with your family. If you have kids and you haven't t- taken care of that yet, get on that and start making those decisions. Just don't try to make those decisions on your own. Like Interact with your family and see what their preference is and take that into consideration as well. Uh, regardless, whatever decision you make, our death and what happens to our old bodies isn't something to be feared or something that we need to be worried about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 50 through 57, here's what Paul writes as an encouragement to the Corinthians. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We're not going to be taking any of this with us. And a lot of us say amen to that, right? Listen, he says, I tell you in a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second question we're going to be uh, looking at is is this one, and I I like this question because I think it's something that we all deal with and struggle with um, maybe somewhat regularly. How do I know that I am saved? I believe and have been baptized, but I have done some stuff. How do I know? Just, just kind of curious, we'll take an impromptu poll this morning. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but how many of you have done some stuff? Anybody? All right. I've done some stuff. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> That'll be in a later sermon. How many of you, like, as, as a believer, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, how many of you have done some stuff? I, I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've, done, I've done some stuff. So what do we deal with that? What do we do with that? What do we deal, how do we deal with the shame and the guilt that comes with it? Because we know that none of us are perfect here, right? That none of us, like Christians are hypocrites that are willing to admit it. Everybody's a hypocrite. <laughs> Nobody stays faithful to the belief system that, that they have, however they, they choose to live their lives. We're, we're just willing to admit that, that, that we can't do that on our own and that God can, can make that happen for us through Jesus. And, and so when it comes to living this life, like we understand that we're not perfect, that even as, as Christ followers, even as Jesus has saved us, that there's still going to be times that we mess up. And we get that it's a goal for us to not continue in that. 
That, that we want to walk as Jesus walked, we want to talk as Jesus talked, that we want to become perfect as, as he is perfect, inasmuch as we are able to follow Jesus as we can through the Holy Spirit, like that's a pursuit that we want to have. What do we do with shame and guilt? Shame and guilt are one of the best tools of our spiritual enemy, Satan. That's what he loves to do to keep us back, hold us back from the life that God wants to live, uh, uh, wants us to live out, not being held back by the things of the past, not being held back by the things that we think that keep us separated from him. Because once we become Christians, there is no separation between us and God. Jesus has bridged that gap for us. And we have hope in that. We have joyfulness and hope and peace because of that gospel message. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Here's what uh, Paul reminds the Romans. He says, Because we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Down in verse 9, Paul continues, he says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you've ever wondered what the significance of the resurrection is, not just the death and sacrifice of Jesus, but the significance of the resurrection, is that Jesus continues to be that covering of sin for us. That when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Jesus standing in the gap between he and us. So if you've dealt with, with, with shame and guilt and thinking about, man, I, you know, all the things that I keep doing or maybe the, the things that you can't stop doing, how do, how do I deal with the shame of guilt and that? Like, is God pleased with me continuing to sin over the same old thing, same old thing? Well, no, he's not, he's not pleased with that. But maybe the approach and how you're handling it kind of contributes to this idea of, like, am, am I saved? The first thing I want to say is, like, don't call unclean what God has called clean. And if you are a Christ follower, if you believe you've been baptized, you're following, you're following Jesus, you, you are clean. God calls you clean. Second, second thing is this. If you're, you're struggling through with the things that you keep doing and you, and you want to stop, maybe the, the approach that you're taking should be shifted a little bit to, to this. A lot of times I think when we talk about sin or think about how we deal with it, it's something that we want to stop doing. Like, hey, I just want to get rid of this. We kind of try to use our own willpower, and we say, if, if I can just figure out a way to stop doing this thing, that I'll be, be in good shape. But, but I'd like for you to think of it in terms a little bit differently. Is God doesn't call us to stop doing stuff. He calls us to a new life and a new approach, a different way of doing stuff, a, a different way of living life. So, so instead of just trying to get rid of some of the things that you're doing, maybe what the issue is is you, you need to change how you're living your life. Re replace the things that you're trying to cut out, the sin in your life, with what God calls us to do. Replace the sin that you feel shame and guilt in and pursue uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, and self-control, and, and replacing the things that you're trying to cut out of your life with the things that God calls us to. Um, 
the question is for us, are we pursuing the actions that lead to the hope of the gospel that we're supposed to feel and know is true about our lives? And that's how the joyfulness and peace of faith in God abound in us. The next question is, how do we love those who would try to kill us? For example, terrorists. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, in verse 43, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And, and that's all. That's all he says. Sounds good. All right, we'll move on to the next one. Oh, wait. No, there's, a, there's another verse. All right. Verse 44, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How is God perfect? Well, he loves everyone. One of the ways in which he is perfect is that he loves everyone, even his enemies, even the people that curse him, even the people that would seek to kill his followers just because they love him and they leave live their lives according to what he calls them to do. So what does it look like to love the people who would take our lives? I mean, mo most of us would, would have somewhat of a violent answer. Is, well, I'm, I'm going to put myself in a position where they can't hurt anybody else. <laughs> that's, that's what we really do. But what, what does it look like if you were confronted in a situation? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But if you were actually in a situation, scenario of persecution, where somebody was going to kill you for your faith, how would you react? What would you do? What would you say? What are the things, what are the actions that you would take? What does loving your enemies and praying for them looks like? How many times during the week do you find yourself praying for the people that you hate? Well, we're Christians. We're not supposed to hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. Okay. But are you praying for the people that you don't like? We'll say that. That's a little bit more palatable. Are you praying for your enemies? Are you caring for them? I, I want to share you a story. Um, there, well, uh, more, more so than a story, something that happened to um, one of the Christians. His name was Polycarp, who came, or he, he knew John, the guy who wrote uh, uh, several books of the Bible in the New Testament. His name was Polycarp, and there's a writing from the Apostolic Fathers in the late second century called the Mar Martyrdom of Polycarp, and they describe what happens to him. He's arrested and burned at the stake and stabbed while he was being burned at the stake. So it didn't, real persecution. They didn't treat Christians all that nicely uh, at that, in that period of history. And right before Polycarp was taken off and executed for his faith, uh, real persecution, he had, his captors came to his house, and as the apostolic fathers are recording what had happened in that scenario, Polycarp is there, he opens the door, um, and he says, hey, I'm... He's an 86-year-old man at this point. He said, hey, I'm not running or anything. I'm, I'm right here. In fact, as you guys are here, the soldier's there. He said, come on, come on in, and I'm going to ask uh, for food and drink to be brought to you. So he invites them into his house. He has food and drink brought to them. And then he says, "And could I pray for you? And then he proceeds to pray for the people who have come in. And so when it, when it comes to this idea of what does it look like to actually love our enemies, maybe it looks like exactly what Jesus has said. Is, is spending that time, whether you're face-to-face -face or not, it's a lot easier as a, at a distance, right? But, but maybe, maybe love, loving your enemies, looks a lot like, in Polycarp's situation, looks a lot like hospitality. Looks, looks a lot like, at least from our end, having a godly view and relationship of love for that person. 
Maybe it looks a lot like sharing the gospel, Jesus even sacrificing himself for people who consider themselves his enemy. And that's what love looks like. The next question is, how do we apply scriptures to our lives but also separate its true meaning or intention? Like, for example, Jeremiah 29, 11. I believe that God has a plan for my life, and I want to share that scripture, but don't want to appear foolish for taking it out of context. I love questions like this because I love when people want to know and understand and use the Bible responsibly. If you're not familiar with it, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And, and I, I just want to say those words feel like, just think, think about this with, with me for a minute, they feel like wrapping myself up in a cozy blanket on a crisp autumn evening in front of a fire. Like, those words are full of promise and hope and peace. And, and I think it's perfectly fine for us to take those and understand those in, in, in those terms. But in context, here's, here's where we find Jeremiah 29, 11. So I, just kind of explaining why this question is being asked. This is what the Lord says, starting in verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Then we have verse 11. In verse 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished, banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. In Jeremiah 29.1, Jeremiah explains that this was a letter from God written to the leaders of the Jews that were in exile in Babylon. And so very, very specifically, Jeremiah 29.11, and don't, like, if you used it before or held on to this as a, as a promise for you before, I want you to continue to listen to what I'm about to say. But Jeremiah 29.11 is not written to you, and it's not written to me. And so, I, like, at this point, it's like, wow. Man, you're kind of taking the balloon and popping it here. Like, what, what's up with that? I see people using that. It's a great encouragement of that verse and that kind of thing. Well, here's, here's the thing. It's still, it's still a Bible, and it's still useful for teaching and for reproof and correcting and training in righteousness. And it still has meaning for us in our lives. And this is kind of one of the things that we do when we interpret Scripture, when we do it responsibly, is we've got to understand first, and understand, in order to understand what a, what a passage means for us, we first have to determine what it meant in its context. That's why we read the verses that, that surround it. Once we determine and understand what it meant, it just has that one meaning and one intention that God preserved it for us to know and understand for thousands of years that we can read it and understand it and, and study it today. Then we, can, then we can figure out what it means for us here. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is not written to individuals. Because a lot of times the way that we read that verse is, well, God has a plan for me. Like, he is stopping the world for my life, and he's got this really specific thing that he wants me to do. And all the while, when we take that verse to mean that, what we miss is that God's purposes are being made complete in you where you are right now. That God is bigger than your, your ability, or, or maybe I should say inability, to discover what his specific will and plan is for your life right here in this moment. That he is perfectly okay with the shirt that you chose this morning. I promise, like he is, he is okay with that, like you all did a great job putting on clothes. 
You know, I mean, that's, that's our dress code here is like, please do. Like, so, so you did great with that. You're within his purpose and plan for your life in that. If you're a Christ follower this morning, you can know with confidence that you are within his purposes and plan for your life as you pursue and follow Jesus. You, you're already in that purpose. And that, that's one of the things that's interesting and, and kind of a, a, a clear distinction between what's going on here with the, the Jews in captivity in, in Babylon. They're reading this, and some of them aren't going to make it to 70 years from then. And yet this same passage is supposed to elicit hope and future, not, not for them as an individual, but to know and understand how God interacts with his people, of, of whom we're, we're a part now. As Christ followers, like we are in the family of God, that we enjoy the same type of relationship with him. And what this verse does for us is it helps us to understand not, not just in our immediate context of like, oh, what should I do with my job and all that kind of stuff. And I absolutely believe that God interacts with us in those moments and he leads us in that. And I, and I think he makes us a part of his purpose for this world. And I think that's the distinction that we need to make in our lives. That's helpful is that it's not so much about you and me and his specific plan for our life, but it's about us discovering what he's doing and how he's calling us to be a part of that in his purpose and plan for the world. And so the, the biggest way for us to understand is we've got this one, you know, got this meaning in context, like, hey, this is for the Jews that are exiled in Babylon. But, but we also have uh, the ability to know and understand what this teaches us about the character and nature of God. Where this absolutely applies to our life because it tells us about how he cares for us. And then as Christ followers, we have this even more distinct and more specific thing that we give, we're able to live out in hope and future for our lives. And that's this, is that Jesus has already taken care of the future. That, that even more specifically, at every point, at every moment in our lives, no matter what is happening, good, bad, indifferent, that we are in the midst of living the hope and the promise that God has for us as Christ followers. All right, so here's the final question. Can you explain why in ancient law, sin caused death? Genesis and Adam and Eve, and Genesis, Adam and Eve blew it. God killed animals in front of them for their skins to cover their bodies. Is that where the tradition of sacrifices came from? How is Jesus acting as that same sacrifice for our sins? His, blood, his body and blood does not make us cannibals, but forgiven. Can you explain all that? Um, no. Not in the time that we have uh, today. I, I can't explain all that. Now, sin causes death, uh, yes, but it is not physical death that is a primary concern so, in other words, when you read through Genesis and you see Adam and Eve and you see the consequence of, of their actions being death, like, you might have thought at some point, well, but, but they didn't die. Like, not immediately, anyway. They ate the, the fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. I know popularly it's an apple, but we don't know that. Uh, I don't think apples are particularly evil, for the record. I like apples, and I like apple juice. So I don't think it was an apple. Pomegranate, yes, some people think it's a pomegranate because those are, those are kind of evil, right? It's good fruit, but you got like all the seeds in it. It's mostly seed and stuff. So maybe, it was, yeah, we'll blame the pomegranate. I'm fine with that. So, um, so when, when they eat, they, they don't immediately die. In fact, it's, oh, they gain all this wisdom, knowledge of God and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the issue, the biggest death that was experienced in that moment was spiritual death. The fact that in that moment, they separated themselves from God. 
literally and, and physically. They walked with God in the garden at that point, and, and, and they had physically had to be separated from him as well, but they were also separated from the spiritually. It, it caused all kinds of events that we still struggle with, this, this issue of sin that immediately, like as soon as we commit sin, it, it has separated us from God, and we need uh, the sacrifice of Jesus to cover that and take care of that, that for us. And so here, here's, the, uh, here's the deal with sacrifice and why uh, sacrifice existed in, in the ancient law, the Old Testament law in, in the Bible. Um, there's a book called Hebrews in the New Testament, and this, like as a whole, it really explains the transition of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, into the New Testament. But even if, if, even if you don't take a lot of time this week to read through all of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, are uh, that's a great quick reference guide. Uh, but I'm just going to read verses 11 through 14 of chapter 9 in Hebrews. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial, ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our, conscience, our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The problem of sin and its connection to physical death is that's the consequence. That's, that's what we deserve. It is to not live for. Can you imagine living forever with the same feeling of impotence of not being able to do the good that you want to do and not being able to keep yourself from the bad that you don't want to do? You, you've gone through that process in your life. It's like, here's, here's the good that I want to accomplish, but I just can't, like I keep getting in, in my own way. Can you imagine Spending an eternity living like that? The consequence of us missing the mark, of us misfiring on all of our choices and decisions uh, in life, uh, translates physically because that, that, that's what happens. You, you think about a car starting to misfire, where it might not blow up immediately, but eventually it's going <laughs> to blow up. That's kind of what happens with us when sin is introduced into our lives. Eventually we're, we're going to blow up, and so death is a part of that. Now, for us to receive the forgiveness of sins, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the author continues to go through and, and talk about how, well, it, it's kind of like a will, where, where the, the promise of the will doesn't, doesn't take effect until the, the person who's made the will has, has died. And so uh, a type of death has to happen for us to be in a position where we can be reconciled with God. Instead of God requiring that of us through the Old Testament, it was rolled back through animal sacrifice. And that was something apart. And I know we don't get that and understand that, and we don't have time to get into all of that. But what Jesus does is the difference in the New Testament, the new covenant that Jesus brings, is that he is a living and eternal sacrifice for us. That he took on himself the consequences that you and I deserved and took care of it for all eternity. And so that's why Jesus doesn't need to continue to die, because he's a living sacrifice. He's, he's there. He's preparing a place for us now that you and I get to be in a state of grace in which we are saved, not just on the outward appearance, but cleansed from the inside out. We become buried with him, like baptism is a picture of. We, we had a couple of those uh, last week. And we were buried with him. All the old is washed away, and we come up out of that water. The new has come. 
That's the symbolism for that. That's why we're called into that. I want to. Uh, I really like the the last question. His body and blood, or the last statement. His body and blood does not make us cannibals, but forgiven. Um, there's a uh, in Luke chapter 22. Jesus says, "This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." He's handing them pieces of bread as he's instituting the Lord's Supper. Communion uh, is what we call it most of the time. In verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you." Early Christians were accused of being cannibals. I don't know if you knew this. Has anybody ever, as a Christian, like has anybody accused you of being a cannibal? No, maybe. Yes. No. Okay. Okay. Uh, so uh, they would th- they would hear these rumors of of Christians getting together in times like this, and they would get together and take the body and blood of Jesus, and they said, "Well, that's gross." And, and early Christians agreed with them. They said, yes, absolutely, this is symbolic. We're not literally taking the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, ironically, in the year 1215, uh, the Roman Catholic Church made it obligatory to believe in a doctrine called transubstantiation. And this doctrine teaches that uh, when we take communion, it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. So the irony there being, like, the church in 1215 tried to say, no, no, we really were cannibals all along. So uh, we, we don't know. It doesn't turn into the body and blood of Jesus. That's not, that, that's not what happens. But it is a symbolic time of remembrance for us to know and remember what Jesus has done. In fact, that's, that's why we do this every week at Velocity. We take communion every week because we want to be reminded over, over anything else that regardless of what we deal with in this life, the questions that we face, that as Christ followers, Jesus has taken care of the, of the future. And we have hope as a result of that. That his death, burial, and resurrection is an eternal solution to our eternal problem. And that's the sin and death that separates us from God. And so this morning, I, I just want to encourage you, like we, we do this uh, only once in a while, but anytime you have questions, anytime, you're, anytime that you're dealing with your faith or understanding God or wrestling with something in your life, we are the type of church that, that like this is a place where you can ask those questions. And even if um, we're not, you know, Carmax the Magnificent and have all the answers all the time, uh, we will walk with that question with you, walk through that question with you as, uh, as we discover what God is calling us to do and to live out in our lives. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for this time of worship, this time of uh, remembering um, who we are and whose we are as a result of your son, Jesus. We thank you for this time of communion. Uh, we thank you for this time of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus and um, and that he's taken away uh, the pain of sin and death in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.